Millions of women worldwide swear by Ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Theralogix for balancing hormone levels. Theralogix also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Theralogix products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Theralogix, supplements from science. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm Dr. Carrie Bedian from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two... Oh, wait, I was trying to think of all the imaginary words that are not actually imaginary, like fantabulous and splendiferous or whatever. Splendiferous. Um, Splendiferous. That's right. I knew it actually was a word. Oh, let's just go with fantabulous today. My two fantabulous co-hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Great. Hi. I feel splendiferous today. (laughs) And But do you feel fantabulous? Well, I I have to think about that one. I'm not sure. I think I do, though. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. I am definitely fantabulous because I'm sitting here with you guys today. Awesome. So I have a deeply important and pressing question for you both because it is cold here. Um, <laughs> what are your current go-to favorite hot drinks? So my recent go-to favorite hot drink was inspired because we went to, on a cruise last summer and we were in Cozumel and we went to this amazing um chocolate factory and for Mexican chocolate that is actually gluten-free, which I was so excited because I didn't know it was going to be gluten-free when we went there. I just assumed I was going to watch everybody else eat and I was going to smell everything, which is, you know, half of my life. (laughs) I mean, that's a great diet plan, but not very nice. It's not favored, but all their chocolate was gluten-free and they had Mexican hot chocolate. Mm. And so it comes in this little disc and the little disc is divided into seven little triangles. Abuelita? I'm sorry, what? Abuelita? No. Is that the brand? Oh. No, it is not. no this is only available in Cozumel. So oh. like, to get more, I need somebody to go to Cozumel for me. Man, so. I want some of that. It sounds great. I but love what hot chocolate. Is I will break off one of the little triangles and um, my coffee maker um, like grinds the beans and then it makes single serve. And mm-hmm. so I drop it in the bottom of my my insulated coffee cup. And then I make my coffee on top of the Mexican hot chocolate triangle and then let it melt. And then I add my cream and I stir it. And it's, it's like um, my own little mocha coffee. And it is so yum, yum. So can you actually taste the like the hot chocolate, like the spicy chocolate? Just with you, the little you square? Taste the chocolate in it, yes. Oh, and it's just, okay. just enough. So it still tastes like coffee, but it has like just enough chocolate flavor in it. And so, yeah, that's that's my go-to right now. Well, there's a company called Olive and Sinclair in Nashville, and they're artisan chocolatiers. And they have a spiced, the bar is really expensive, but when I want to splurge, I'll buy it. And it's spiced chocolate. It's really, really good. You should try that in your coffee. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. thinking. Well, my go-to drink is sort of similar, but I don't honestly, so last winter we went to Deer Valley. And so we went to one of the like coffee chocolate shops or whatever. And I think it was, 
espresso and hot chocolate mixed together. And then they put this dollop of gelato, chocolate gelato right in the middle of it. It was so good. It was like, it was like, you know, made me feel like really um, had a lot of energy, but it was like just the, the, the gelato melting and all that was so good. That was like an awesome drink. I don't know what the name of it was, but it was good. That sounds delicious. Um, I love spiced apple cider. And I'm kind of, I'm not, I was about to say lazy isn't the right word. Lazy is absolutely the right word Um, (laughs) about making it because I don't, I don't keep a lot of sugary drink stuff around the house at all. Apple, like apple cider is not something that you can, it's not like coffee beans that you can keep around or a chocolate mix or whatever that you can keep around for a while. So I don't get it very often, but I have these mulling spices and the little, you know, ball that you put them in and then soak it in. and so. When I actually have my act together, I that is one of my favorites, and it's yeah, that's good. So I like you that. need that and add a bottle of red wine to it and <laughs> cook it on your stove, and they, <laughs> you take your red wine, take uh-huh. your apple cider, and put that in as well, um, and then do your mulling spices. Just don't so go to work. Don't go to work that same morning. <laughs> someone, someone brought a bottle of caramel cognac brandy. Huh liqueur of some sort and Uh so the original intent of it was to be used in hot apple cider and so i I had forgotten about that it's sitting on the top shelf untouched for the past year because last thanksgiving that would be pretty darn good too yeah Ooh. okay all right (laughs) excellent well now that i have delicious things to think about what question do we have today all right here's our question Hi, Docs. I can't say how much peace of mind your podcast has given me. I really appreciate the three of you for all your hard work to make this podcast possible each week. Thank you so much. I am a 26-year-old female. My husband is 27. My husband has slightly low motility but counts perfectly normal, and our REI told us he's not concerned with the numbers. I have PCOS and don't ovulate on myself regularly. AMH levels are good, HSG normal, no other issues besides my ovaries being slow to develop follicles and ovulate. This is both our first baby, and we have been trying to conceive for two years. We're on third IUI cycle. For the last two cycles, I've done a combination of Clomid and Letrozole. The first cycle we triggered on day 16 of the cycle. The second time around, by day 14, my follicles were only at 13 millimeters. So I did three days of 75. I used a Follistem triggered on day 18. This time around, my RA had me do letrozole without the Clomid and begin Follistem injections on day 8 through 10. When I went in for my day 11 ultrasounds, my follicles were still only at 10 millimeters. I'm doing two more shots of Follistem before my day 13 ultrasound. Is there anything else I can do to improve the follicular development and get my follicles to where they need to be? If this IUI fails, we are going to be considering IVF. Do you think it is worth pursuing a fourth IUI or do you think we're wasting our time and should just move on to IVF? Thank you for any advice. So the follicles are really small. What I understood her to say, her largest follicle was only 13. Was there anything any bigger than that, did she say? Well, it sounded like she was able to trigger at a point when it was presumably bigger, but the last couple of times she's been running on the smaller side. Yeah, yeah. I And my, my suggestion is I'm curious as to what doses of letrozole she's using. So, you know, Letrozole comes in 2.5 milligram tablets. Um, I don't know what you guys use. I will use up to 12.5 milligrams a day. And I, in people I've like- I've never done it that high. Usually up to 7.5, but I mean, it probably spawned up to 12. I mean, it, yeah. just a high so dose. I, 
I will go up to 12.5 milligrams for five days and then like I'll skip a day and then do either 75 IUs or 150 IUs of Minipure. Um, and people who are significantly resistant, there, yeah. there, are, there are not a lot of people who are not going to recruit a follicle. I, I don't start out with that regimen. I start out with something much lower. Mm-hmm. But if, if your doc is only maybe using five milligrams of letrozole, um, that would be my consideration if you're wanting to give it one more good swing. There's well, a- to be, go ahead, Carrie. I was going to say, some of the protocols we use, like letrozole, either 5 or 7.5 in combination with Clomid, like 150. Um, and that's that's shown some data. I would say, look at all the adjunct stuff because you are 26, which while I understand the desire is very strong to have a baby yesterday, especially if you've been trying for two years already, this may be worthwhile to say, okay, I'm going to take six months and work on every other medical issue that could potentially be going on. Just because with PCOS, you're more likely to run higher weights, higher blood sugars, you know, uh, blood pressures, all of those things. Maybe worthwhile to take some time, set aside, knock all that down. And then potentially try, what, uh, say what? Abositol. Abositol. Yeah, Abositol yeah. is a good one. Um, try all of that stuff, maybe metformin as well, and, and get everything optimized. And that will serve you well, I think, regardless of what you do, because either you're going to try one more IUI and it's going to work or it's not going to work, or you're going to go to IVF. And regardless, optimizing everything is going to be huge. And One of the things that we oftentimes see, especially in our younger patients, is the desire of, I want it now. And and I I feel this time pressure that is very real and it's very valid. But in the bigger scheme of things of like, okay, you're 26, it's well worth it to take an extra however many months to a year to optimize all of that so that going forward, you're not you're not only set for your first pregnancy, but every pregnancy thereafter, because this is, we're playing the long game here. We want to make sure that you have the ability to not only have this first child, but run after it for the next 20 <laughs> years and and be able to do that safely and healthfully so that you're able to run after your grandkids too. And that that's harder to happen if you've got other concurrent medical problems. So you didn't mention that one way or the other. So I don't know if that's true for you, but that's something to think about. Yeah, one thing I would say for encouragement, you know, really what this boils down to, and medicine is not black or white, but to boil it down to black or white, literally you've had one, maybe two opportunities based on what you've told us to get pregnant. I think you said maybe you've done two or three IUIs. And and like Carrie said, based on your age and what we know about your AMH, I really think you're going to get pregnant. I really do. It just, it may not be with IUI for whatever reason, but you've essentially only had, you know, if you, if you have very irregular cycles, you've really only had three shots at trying to get pregnant. And because you've only ovulated potentially three times, a lot of our patients don't see us until they've had 12 shots at it. So I don't think, I don't want you to feel like there's something wrong with you inherently or that you're never going to be pregnant. I just think your body's kind of not listening to your brain. Your brain's trying to send the signal and your, your eggs are not being recruited and not grown. But I do think when that happens, either with your next IUI or with IVF, I really think you have a great chance of getting pregnant based on what we know about you. So hang in there. I think it's going to happen. I just don't know when. You'll get there. So let's piggyback off of that kind of a timing question of what do I do and when do I do it (laughs) into the bigger episode um, overarching view, which is the timing of fertility. And specifically, we'll go into to IVF here of how long does all of this take? Because I think probably one of the most common first questions we get at 
every type of visit that we do is, okay, doc, how long between now and when I can get pregnant? And so let's start to break this up in into bits. So let's do the question that's a little easier to answer because it's a little more concrete, which is someone decides to do, we'll start with IVF. Someone decides to do an egg retrieval. How long does it take once they start whatever med you're going to start them with? How long does it take once they start with whatever med until eggs are out? So... I would say that on average, and I must say seriously with any meds, that you're looking at probably a five to seven week time period because you have what I consider a prep month, which is either generally getting started on birth control pills that help your ovaries kind of get in sync with each other, or we may do something like estrogen priming, where at the end of your cycle, you may take some estrogen in some form, maybe some additional medicines in there. And then once you start your stimulation, Okay, so after you're done with that prep month, most stimulations are going to last 10 to 12 days. There are going to be some people that are shorter. There are going to be some people that are longer. But on a general estimation, 10 to 12 days is a reasonable expectation. And that's the time period to trigger. And then your egg retrieval is generally a day and a half from the time of your trigger. So, so and just to clarify too, 10 to 12 days of shots essentially in there. That's Those are the shots that are stimulating your eggs to grow. So 10 to 12 days to really get your eggs to grow and do what they're supposed to. So mini sub question, what is the earliest number of days of shots that you have ever triggered someone for an IVF cycle? What's the longest number? I would say eight or nine would be the earliest. We really don't like to trigger people that early. We really like to push them a little bit more because sometimes I think it's, there's a benefit. There's kind of a, a fine line between triggering too early and triggering too triggering too late. We want to kind of trigger in between. Um, I think the latest, and sometimes for patients who may only may only have one and maybe two egg two eggs, and they really want to keep going. I mean, fourteen would be pretty long. Um, but we've gone even a little bit longer for somebody who really wants to go to egg retrieval and they only had like one, and we're trying to wait for the second one to grow. So I would say relatively similar. I would say you know probably around cycle day eight. It's not something I would be excited about doing. Mm -hmm. And that would probably actually be in somebody with diminished ovarian reserve who they just kind of, their two or three went (laughs) and we had to to make the best of it. Um, Long time, I would venture probably day 16, 17, 18. Now, I I do want to say that this is way different than when I started my career. So when I started my career, we were doing a lot of fresh embryo transfers, which when we did that, we had to consider the the lining of the uterus. And now that I almost do exclusively frozen embryo transfers, I can really focus on what's happening in the ovaries. And I don't really care if the lining may get some progesterone (laughs) exposure because we're going to wait to put the um, embryo in at a later point in time. So a fresh embryo transfer for people who don't know would be a transfer three to five days after you get the final trigger to go to IVF. You let the embryo grow for a few days and you do a transfer just a few days later. And so in that situation, what Susan, I think you were alluding to was that if we push you too far, if we push your ovaries too far, you can produce the hormone progesterone in high quantities and that can negatively impact a transfer if we were going to do it just in the next few days after we do your retrieval. Whereas now we don't have to worry about that because we don't typically do those fresh transfers anymore. So our goal, our focus, sole focus is to really 
optimize the growth of the eggs. And that's what we're mainly focused on now. I would agree with you guys on the short end of that. For the long end, I've actually gone out longer, I think day 2021. 20, um, and we routinely trigger between, I would say, day 11 to 14 or so, or probably the most common days that we trigger, meaning retrievals are roughly two days after that. Um, a lot of that's based off the research that we've done because we we're not afraid to let people go long because we mm -hmm. haven't thought it makes any negative impact, which is, like Susan said, very different than when when we all started our careers. Okay, so yeah, one other one other note on that, Carrie, I was going to say, and this doesn't happen very often, but I think we all do this too. If we have, say, a youngest patient who has a lot of eggs and say one egg gets really big and grows really fast, one of the things that we do now that we didn't do before is sometimes we'll just let that egg go and go, who cares? You know, if you've got a whole pack of eggs that are growing that are much smaller, we'll let that egg ovulate and release, but we'll continue to make that group of eggs grow, in which case sometimes that's when our stimulations can also go out really long. And mm -hmm. that, that tends to work really well. Like you said, there's no negatives to that. Basically, as long as you get the eggs mature and you're able to retrieve, you know, several at the end. All right. So the next question on timing is these eggs are now out. You did your retrieval 10 minutes ago. Your patient is now awake and raring to go of, okay, doc, when do I know about my embryos? So how long does it take for them to know about their embryos? So, so you go ahead. Go ahead. It usually takes about seven days. So from the time we retrieve the egg, we put the egg and sperm together the same day. And then the following morning, they'll do the fertilization check. Our embryologists will look and see which eggs have fertilized and become embryos. So one cell embryos. And then we'll put those little guys and girls right back in the incubator and let them grow for like five days. And then on the fifth day, the sixth day and the seventh day, we'll bring the embryos out. So we would like for the embryos to have reached the benchmark called blastocyst which is a stage where the embryo has like 140, 150 cells on day five. But we know now also from research that even if it meets the benchmark on day six or day, even day seven, although day seven embryos are not quite as good, that we can certainly have babies from those embryos as well. So we'll look at them on day five, six, and seven and know which ones can be tested and which ones can't. So we'll take the cells out on that day, freeze the embryos, and then we'll wait to find out what the genetics show at that point. So... Once we have the embryo, for people who want genetic testing, usually PGTA, pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy or the correct number of chromosomes, how long does that information take to get? Depending on the lab throughout the country, I would say somewhere between four to eight weeks. Okay. And Doc, I'm just dying to go ahead. Can't you just put a rush on that? Unfortunately, we can't. Um, we we would, we would like to push those genetic people to do things in like a snap. Um, trust me, we would, we would like to make it happen. But unfortunately, due to the technology and the number of machines and the number of people who can actually run those machines with all their fancy advanced degrees, um, it, it, it really is kind of the nature of the beast at this point in time. I know that all of these genetic companies are working on ways to hopefully shorten that time period. But what, what I like to tell our listeners and, and our patients is that um, it does take patience, and we understand that. Um, but also know that getting that information is, is very important, and it's important right. for us to get accurate information. And so once we get that, and we're able to put in that chromosomally normal embryo, we're ideally actually going to get you to your endpoint faster than if we didn't know that information. Okay. So once you have the embryos, 
you now are sitting at a point where retrieval is totally done. She has completely healed after the retrieval. And you've just had your consult to say we were wildly successful. We have 85 beautiful euploid embryos. Spoiler alert, we never have 85 euploid embryos. This is a gross exaggeration. Please do not and take you, this as reality. Euploid is normal, normal embryos. And euploid is normal. So, okay, we have we have a euploid embryo to work with. How long before I can transfer and get my pregnancy test? So it kind of depends. <laughs> it depends on if you want to do a program cycle, which is a cycle essentially where we replace your hormones and kind of run your cycle sort of in a similar way that we ran your IVF cycle, except in this case, we're focused more on your endometrium. We're not focused so much on stimulating your ovaries to make eggs. We're focused on growing your endometrium. And so my go-to protocol usually is I have the, my patients do birth control pills for about three weeks. Um, they start on estrogen patches and usually it takes about three weeks to grow the endometrium. They come in for an ultrasound at the end of that kind of six week time frame. If the lining looks appropriately thick, then we usually do the transfer the following week. So about seven weeks if they do birth control pills and if they do the program cycle with estrogen. So I often don't do birth control pills before program cycles if I'm not doing the, the Lupron the luprolide. And so for me, that's usually about three weeks. Um, but if you end up having to use luprolide to suppress um, any follicles growing and misbehaving that could adversely affect your progesterone levels, that's going to add on potentially two or three weeks as well, unfortunately. Right. And Susan, once that embryo is in, how long before they know the pregnancy test results? So some of that's going to vary from clinic to clinic, okay? Yeah. Um, there are some clinics who start doing pregnancy tests maybe five or six days later. Um, I typically do a pregnancy test about nine or 10 days later. It, so like I said, it, it's going to vary from place to place, um, but that that I think is a very reasonable range between those two numbers. Right. And Abby, now that you've gotten me pregnant, you're going to deliver my baby, right? I get to see you for the entire rest of the pregnancy, right? <laughs> I would love to see you, carry for the entire rest of the pregnancy, but we hand you off to our colleagues in the OBGYN world. That's their expertise. Their expertise is getting you from six weeks pregnant, eight weeks pregnant, all the way to full term. Our expertise is getting you to that point, getting you to the six to eight week mark. Right. So we, we hold on to you until you are pretty much usually out of the miscarriage window. We want to make yep. sure that you are nice and stable and we have very good odds of everything going very well from that point on um, before you going on to your OB. But they're going to be very happy to see you and take care of you as well. Okay. So kind of a quick recap of that. We, our lives run in menstrual cycles. And so you figure <laughs> it takes kind of a menstrual cycle for prep most of the time, and then a menstrual cycle to get the stim, get the eggs out, and get embryos. And I'm going to interrupt real quick because you're right there at the point, because another timing thing people always ask about is after egg retrieval, how long until I get my period? Excellent, and so yes. Because that, that one's the one like people are always wondering, and they're like, oh, my period normally does this. So Generally, it's going to be between five to 10 days is when your next period after egg retrieval is going to happen. So you've got the menstrual month of prep, menstrual month of getting the eggs out and creating embryos, usually one menstrual month of waiting for PGT results, and then another one going into transfer. So it's it's a solid like three to four-ish months of getting through this. And that's with everything going smoothly, no gaps, no waiting for 
whatever. Yeah, and I also say too, if I'm talking to you for a consult right now about IVF, the question I always get, well, I'm gonna start my period in about two weeks. Can I go ahead and get started with that period? And you know, everybody's office is a little bit different, but some of the the prep that Carrie was talking about, I think was maybe three weeks of birth control, but the other prep is doing things like HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, making sure we have an up-to-date sperm count, making sure you don't need to see a high-risk OB, making sure your pap smears are up-to-date. So all of that kind of has to happen before we start you on the birth control pills and get you into the IVF cycle. And so some people kind of get like frustrated because they're like, well, I thought I could get going with my next cycle. And generally that can't happen, unfortunately. So another important thing to understand about timing that um, we don't have control over is that if you have any health insurance, you, our staff is going to, our authorization staff are going to have to contact your insurance with all of your diagnoses, codes, and all those types of things to see if you have any type of coverage. So that coverage may be um, just medications. Sometimes it might be treatment. It may be medications and treatment. And so that process is actually not necessarily a quick process. It takes a lot (laughs) of time for our staff to do authorizations. And it's very important to make sure we have all our I's dotted and T's crossed when this is happening and let them completely do that process. Because if there's something that's missing or we don't get authorization, you may think you have coverage and then them be like, "Mm, sorry, we're not going to pay. Now you have to pay cash for your IVF cycle. So, um, you know, our our staff are working as hard and diligently as they can. um, But making sure they have gone through that authorizations process can take weeks. And so especially in the situation that Carrie was just talking about, you know, you're a week or two away from, you know, starting your period and you're like, oh, I want to get it done. So I get it done, you know, before school starts or before the end of the year or before we go on vacation or before we have to go to my sister's wedding or whatever it is. Um, Know that that part of the process we are doing as quickly as possible but it can take a lot more time than it really seems like it should. And one other thing I would like to bring up too is just remember that medicine is not black or white and your care is not black or white and your ovaries are not black or white. And so what I mean by that is, you know, ultimately we may have this great plan in place. Everything's all set. You're ready to go. You've got everything planned with work and they know when you're going to be off monitoring. You get to our office and you have this huge cyst on your ovary and you're all ready to get started. We may go, gosh, I'm sorry the cyst is really big or your estrogen level is really high, you're not suppressed, you know, sorry, we're going to have to wait till your next period and get all this started. So just kind of be prepared for those sorts of things because those are things, I mean, it goes without saying, but those are out of your control. They're out of our control. And some people can get really, really upset about those sorts of things. And, you know, it's just one of those things in life. You just, those are kind of things you have to just roll with the punches. Sometimes that happens and, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't get into cycle, but it just means you can't get into cycle right now when you, you know, when you wanted to get in cycle. Yeah, it, it, it's important to understand that when you come in and we may deviate from our course because of something we're not expecting and, you know, yes, we plan to do this, we're trying to give you the best chances that you personally can have to make it to baby. And, you know, there's there's times that we can, you know, be like, oh, well, it's not that big a deal. Yes, we can move forward. But there are other times that we know in our experience 
um, that we really need to focus and maybe wait a couple weeks, maybe wait a month um, to get you the best chances you can have because you definitely don't want to do this more times than you have to. And would love for you just to be able to do it once. And so that that's we're we're doing it to help you be the most productive you can be. The other practical points to consider for uh, they mentioned um, insurance and prior offs and all that from what Susan was talking about. For some of our patients who have to pay cash, it can take a while to get all the money together. And that's okay. We don't expect people to come in and say, okay, it's going to cost whatever amount. And then you just, you know, have a big old smile on your face and hand over your credit card. Like that's not the expectation. Oftentimes people need time. That's fine. The other thing is that these medications are not ones that you can just order and go pick up at your corner pharmacy later that day. Most of them are coming from mail order pharmacies. Pretty much all of us have, at least in the bigger cities, have a pharmacy in town that you can go pick up stuff from, but oftentimes that might be a little bit more expensive. And so if we can get you the mail order stuff, that's what we want because it's a little bit easier. And so that takes time to do as well. And while sometimes you can rush it and push it, much of the time, those couple of weeks as you were prepping with all of this stuff, the meds, the finances, the getting getting everything organized, that allows you the time to be organized going into it. And so you're not super stressed and crazed going into it because when you're doing this particularly for the first time, there's a lot of unknowns. And to to go into it two days later, many people come back afterwards and they say, you know, I probably should have taken enough time, uh, some more time to do this, which we we know, but a lot of patients don't really want to hear from us. Um, and so that's another thing to consider. Another thing about medications and timing is know that you need to be prepared to order more medications. A lot of insurances and a lot of practices will have you only order medications for maybe like eight to 10 days and expect to need to get refills. And though most mail order pharmacies are able to, um, you know, do overnight shipping, you need to be aware of if you live in a geography, that that overnight shipping is not available. If there's a weekend coming, if there's a holiday coming, if there is a storm hitting anywhere in the yes. United States. Storms in, yes. in the summer are the worst. Storms I, I mean, are beast. These are, <laughs> these are all things. So leaving things to the last minute doesn't necessarily bode you well. Do you live in a place that isn't close? You know, Carrie and Abby happen to live in very big cities, which is great. Um, I have a lot of my patients who live three hours from the closest pharmacy for them to get most of these medications. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a pinch, you may be making that three-hour, one-way, and six-hour round-trip drive um, because, you know, most of us don't have a lot of extra medications we, at our offices. Um, there are certain medications we just don't get as samples. And so you need to be aware that that make sure you have a little bit of a cushion. Mm-hmm. And one last thing I would say, too, is is, you know, a lot of times we'll go through all this and patients will go, we know we really want to do this as quickly as we can. And I kind of laugh at that, but not not in a mean way, but it's, I think all of us would agree. We all assume everybody wanted to be pregnant yesterday. So we know when we're talking about all this and people are like going, oh my gosh, is this really going to take this long? The reason we're saying all this is because we want to do it the right way. We want to make sure that you have a good pregnancy. You have your best chance for success. And I know many of us have been in the situation before where every now and then we've tried to do things in a rush. And when you do those sorts of things, like when you don't get the pre-authorizations because you're trying to rush it through, and then all of a sudden the patient shows up and they're ready to get started. And you know things just never go well if you do them in a rush. If you do them 
you know, kind of timing and, you know, make sure that we, yeah, exactly. Methodically and make sure that, you know, you've, you've crossed your T's and your dotted, dotted your I's. It's better, better for everybody. So we assume though, that you want to get going fast and we, we do everything as quickly as we can. Mm-hmm. Also, God forbid you have a negative outcome. It is a lot easier to tolerate when you didn't rush into anything. Some of the angriest people I have seen were people who we bent over backwards for to get them going quickly. Something didn't go well, whether it was in anybody's control or not. And oftentimes it's not. And they felt like they rushed into it. And that's something that we can't take back. And this process is so draining in just about every way that we we don't want you to feel that. And we've been doing this for so long with so many people. We've seen a lot of the ways that this can go. And so when we're saying both good and bad, (laughs) both good and bad, when we're saying, you know, just take take the next three weeks to get everything together and let's start with your next period, not the one that you're going to have tomorrow. Um, there's a reason for all of that. And that's, it's okay. It's okay. So some of the other timing questions are related to people's individual journeys. Meaning, let's say someone comes and they say, I, I want to do IVF, but I can't do it for X amount of time, for whatever reason. Sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's life plans, vacations, somebody's sick, they're in a wedding, whatever it may be, maybe your own wedding. Um, (laughs) How how do we think about those kind of situations where someone says, look, I can't do this for another three months, another six months, and another year? Like, how do we think about those? I think some of it depends on what your age and ovarian reserve are. Okay, so if you have very poor ovarian reserve or you are in your upper 30s or 40s, um, we're going to be a lot less happy about six months to a year <laughs> than, than somebody who's not in that situation. Realistically, three months is probably not going to break, make or break anyone. Okay, and the other thing to know is that you don't always have to do retrieval and transfer kind of back to back. So if you're like, oh, I don't want to do this because I don't want to be in the middle of something or be pregnant at blank, you might be able to do your egg retrieval, take a break for a few months, go do whatever you need to do, and then come back and do your embryo transfer. And a lot of times, those are some of the most um, like calm and relaxed people because they <laughs> yeah. have time to kind of break those things up. And it's like, okay, we did the... Because realistically, I, in my opinion, and I... Uh, I'll defer to Abby as well. When I did my IVF, the the egg retrieval part was the most stressful because there's so many unknowns. How many follicles am I going to recruit? How many days are we going to do? For me, I was like, when do I need to fly across the country to get my egg retrieval and time it, you know, and be able to get a flight and all those kinds Mm -hmm. of stuff in a snowstorm? I mean, all kinds of stuff, you know? Whereas if it's, you do this part, take a break and do your other part, sometimes people kind of, balance that journey a little bit better. Yeah. And you know, the thing about your embryos, once we've frozen them, there's no shelf life. There's no sell by date. They're not going to go bad. Whether we transfer them six weeks from now, six months from now, six years from now, doesn't make a difference. But you know, timing wise, I know for you, you want to be pregnant. But once we create those embryos, they can stay there forever and they don't age like we do. (laughs) And same thing for cryopreserved eggs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the perils that we have all seen for someone who says, I want to do this in three months, six months, a year, is like Susan Susan and Abby said, it's not like there's a sell-by date 
on on any of these things. The one thing that I think all of us have noticed is when someone says, okay, I need to I need to put this off for six months because of X reason, the longer you put it off, the more the likelihood of life getting in the way, whether that mm-hmm. is, let's say, okay, I can do this in six months because that's when I will, you know, have vacation. Graduate from, yeah. <laughs> graduate from whatever or be married or whatever. All of us have seen the patient where they had a very solid concrete plan and then somebody's 2020 happened. 2020 happened, for example. Yeah, 2020 <laughs> happened. Um, yeah. Pandemic. yeah, like somebody Hopefully not another pandemic for a while. <laughs> God, no. Um, somebody gets sick, something happens with work and you get busy. Uh, you buy a new house. You have a long-term vacation plan that you've been working on for two years and, and that's going to throw a wrench to things. So it's very common for people to run into the one more month, one more month, one more mm-hmm. month phenomenon. Yeah. And so just kind of know that. And we don't we don't object usually to you taking a couple months to get everything together because we'd rather you be calm and well-prepared. But that one more month phenomenon can really throw a wrench into things. And we've all seen patients who come back two or three years later because one more month kept happening. And if you're a listener who's fallen into the one more month phenomenon, we are not going to be upset when you call back. Oh. Hey, can I get started again? We are so excited to see you again. Like there's there's no judgment. We're just excited to help you along in that journey. So Absolutely. don't don't sit there and be like, oh no, I'm one of those people. What do I do now? Pick up the phone and call and go see your REI. <laughs> and, and we do that fairly frequently. And that's why Carrie brings that up. And a we lot. we see a lot of people yeah. and, and life happens. I mean, it happens to us too for various and sundry things in our lives as well. You know, you just you get so wrapped up in what you're doing in day to day, you forget to do X, Y, or Z. So yeah, it happens to all of us. But yeah, the quicker you can kind of get back into it, the better. Mm-hmm. And when we are, particularly for people who are coming back to resume treatment, we may say it's going to take an extra month because we need to update your testing because it's been however long it's been. And that's okay too. Um, one of the timing questions we get all the time is on a first visit, we say, okay, we are going to order all these tests, you know, sperm for him, eggs, tubes, uh, uterus for you, blood work, genetic carrier screening, all of that. And we go through that list and people look at look at us with big saucer eyes and they say, how long is that going to take? Can How soon can I get started? So what's the timing of all the initial testing? And really within about a month, you can get it all done. I mean, the only thing that really requires significant timing would be the tubal assessment slash uterine assessment. So that has to be timed in the window after the period, but before the patient ovulates. So usually between day five and day 11, um, the sperm test can be timed between two to five days of ejaculation. So somewhere in that window is when the guy would come in and collect. Uh, but other than that, we can, you know, we, sometimes we can do the, the prerequisite blood testing, infectious disease testing while the patients are there. Typically, I like for the patients to get financial information first to really make sure mm-hmm. that they're going to want to do it before we, you know, draw a whole bunch of blood work on them. But typically, blood testing, you get done really fast. And then it's just the timing of the HSG or saline sonogram and then the timing of doing the sperm test on the male partner. The timing of the ovarian reserve um, evaluation can also be be that. But I would say most of the time, as Abby said, we can accomplish everything in one menstrual cycle. But sometimes, as Carrie mentioned, life gets in the way. And, you know, whether it's, you know, oh, my period started on this date and I had a business trip and I couldn't make it or um, maybe my partner hasn't um, called and made their appointment for their sperm testing. Uh-huh. Which we get very, very, very often. 
Um, so what I would recommend in that standpoint is if you haven't had your evaluation or you're needing to refresh things, um, really ooch them to get their testing done sooner than later. <laughs> because some of their testing may take a few weeks to get back. And so we really want to have the entire picture, ideally when you come in for that follow-up visit, um, so that we can really give you a full picture of what's what's going on for your fertility challenges at this point in time. Exactly. Are there any other timing questions that y'all get on a fairly frequent basis that we haven't already touched on? I think that's the big yeah, one. I can't think of anything. Yeah. We've hit them all, I think. Oh, one other one. Doc, I want to do one more IUI before I start IVF. <laughs> yeah. Is is that going to hurt anything? It's not going to hurt anything except for time. Yeah, it's just going to delay you by a month. Yeah. And that that's another one of those one more month phenomenon type things. Yeah, that's right. But generally, no, it doesn't make a huge impact. Susan, were you thinking of one other thing? I was thinking of it, but I can't remember this moment. Um, it was a good one. It was a good one. Um, let's see. Timing, timing, timing. I'll talk about it at some other point, I'm sure. Yeah, guaranteed. <laughs> as soon as we stop recording, you will think of exactly what it is. So, okay. Perfect. Well, to our audience, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from you and we actually really appreciate those reviews quite a lot. Um, we're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Stop by, say hello, leave us a review. We appreciate it and we'll talk to you soon. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be asked on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas as well, so let us know what you want to hear. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment, not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. All right, bye. 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 This episode is supported by Receptiva DX. Getting pregnant isn't always easy, as so many people listening know. Many couples struggle with infertility, and unexplained infertility can be particularly frustrating. Receptiva DX is the only test that can identify endometriosis, progesterone resistance, and endometritis in a single sample, all of which are causes for unexplained infertility and therefore impact success rates of IVF treatments. Receptiva DX includes BCL-6, which is a marker that identifies uterine inflammation, which is most often associated with asymptomatic or silent endometriosis. Learn more at ReceptivaDX.com or download the app Receptiva DX.